My name is Pat, Pat D. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. This is a wonderful life. And uh, my sobriety date is June 10th, 1991. And, uh, my home group is uh, Hawk Point 12 Severs, Hawk Point, Missouri. And I have a sponsor and I try to sponsor people. And uh, welcome to this uh, international convention. And like I said, if you have an extra seat beside, raise your hand because maybe somebody else can sit down. Okay, can we have a moment of silence for the A recoveries of the past 75 years, please? My job is to introduce the speakers. Our first speaker is uh, Joel. Hi, everybody. I'm Joel. I'm alcoholic. It's really great to be here. Are you having a good time? Me too. There's so much joy here. And to me, joy is one of the most essential elements of emotional sobriety. Um, but before I get to joy, I've got to talk, to you about, talk with you about how I got to joy. Uh, and I've got to go way back to before I even started drinking. Before I even started drinking, I had many of the characteristics of an alcoholic. I was lonely. I was full of fear. I didn't feel like I fit in with my fellows. And I was neurotic. Um, and I know that I was neurotic because when I was a freshman in high school, before I ever picked up a drink, I was sitting with some kids at lunch or at recess, and I don't remember what it was that I was doing, but some girl turned to me and she said, you're sure neurotic. And for days I obsessed. What did she mean by that? How could she say that to me? I'm not neurotic. What does that mean anyway? So finally, three or four days later, I looked up the word neurotic because this thing had been stuck in my head for days and days. And I don't know if this is the definition that I found when I looked it up that day, but this is the definition that I found when I more recently looked up the word neurotic. Unnecessarily or excessively anxious and obsessive. Uh, fit me to a T. It was maybe a year after that that I started drinking. And when I started drinking, alcohol worked for me. It took away the loneliness. It took away the fear. I don't remember exactly clearly, but I think it may have even helped with the neurotic tendencies a little bit. Um, it also made my selfishness much worse and my dishonesty much worse. Um, but I loved it because it worked to take away that loneliness and that fear and maybe the neurosis as well. It wasn't too long, though, before alcohol turned on me. And instead of working for me, alcohol made the loneliness and the fear much worse. And I know that it made the neurosis much worse. My anxiety and obsessive thinking at the end of my drinking was absolutely oppressive. I drank alone in the dark and I was paralyzed by alcohol. I couldn't make a decision to leave my bedroom to try to be able to get out of the house. I couldn't interact with other people. Um, I was terrified. And I came here, and you wrapped me up in your arms, and you helped me to begin to heal and to begin to change. Um, and 
The steps, of course, are the primary vehicle of that change. Service has been extremely important to that change. Uh, And the change has been slow, steady progress. And my focus on emotional sobriety didn't really start until I hit an emotional bottom at 14 years sober. Uh, At 14 years sober, I had worked the steps. I was sponsoring guys. I was actively attending Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. I was doing service. And I was carrying around uninventoried resentment. And I was walking around with my toes curled and my lips pursed and my teeth clenched. And one day at work, it all came out. It all exploded. I berated a coworker in front of others, cruelly and viciously. And it was like a sober blackout, because there are parts of it that I didn't remember immediately after the incident, and that I don't remember to this day. It was a blind white rage. And the worst thing about it all is that this woman was not even the focus of my uninventoried resentment. She had just done something that I disapproved of. Um, and my anger just shot out at her. And it passed pretty quickly. And I was so ashamed and so embarrassed. But Alcoholics Anonymous kicked in. It absolutely kicked in. Um, And I work in a profession where it's not okay to do that. It's not okay to yell at people in front of other people in the profession that I work in. I know that some places people do that. You know, they bend. It's not right. It's not okay where I work. And I knew that I was in danger of losing my job. uh, And that there were going to be consequences. But Alcoholics Anonymous kicked in and I walked through that experience using the tools and the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I took responsibility I took my lumps, I made amends, and I moved on. But it also gave me an opportunity to really reflect on my program. I thought, I'm supposed to be a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, 14 years sober. How could I have done this? And so I worked with a sponsor and I did some reflection to try to figure out what it was that was missing in my program. And it became clear to me very quickly that two things were missing. Ongoing inventory and prayer and meditation that I had never really up to that time developed any clear and consistent method of incorporating steps 10 and step uh, and step 11 into my life on a daily basis. And and I did inventory around, you know, the uninventory resentment that I've been carrying around. uh, And I started to uh, to develop my practice of meditation. And I I love uh, the section in our book, um, pages 86, 87, 88, that gives give us a suggestion for how to start our day, uh, because it is a suggestion that has looseness to it and that, that gives us freedom to kind of find our own way with that. Um, and I, I began to. To explore that and I continue to explore it today and it continues to grow and change and to become just a solid foundation for my sobriety in the 12 and 12 in the essay on step 11, Bill writes 
there is a direct linkage among self-examination, meditation, and prayer. Taken separately, these practices can bring much relief and benefit, but when they are logically related and interwoven, the result is an unshakable foundation for life. So in my tenth step, I observe my greed, or I observe my lust, uh, or I observe um, my selfishness. And then in my eleventh step, I ask God to take me toward generosity, or to take me toward fulfillment, or to take me toward outgoing love. And that process of weaving those two steps together creates a a foundation uh, for daily living. As I became more interested in emotional sobriety, I also found a grapevine article that many of you may be familiar with that Bill Wilson wrote uh, called The Next Frontier, Emotional Sobriety. Uh, And in that article, he he wrote about uh, how neurotic we are. Uh, And he used that word, uh, neurotic. Um, and, And he tried to put his finger on the source of our neurosis. The basic flaw had always been dependence almost absolute dependence on people or circumstances to supply me with prestige, security, and the like. You know, and I knew that the root of the resentment that, uh, that I'd been carrying around was that dependence on the security of my own relationship, uh, my romantic relationship. I have a partner. He's also a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we walk this path together. You know, but we're both alcoholics, and... Uh, so there's always room for more growth and, and um, you know, I depended too much upon his approval. I depended too much upon his presence. Uh, and, uh, and in the fourth step in the 12 and 12, Bill extends on that theme of dependence when he writes about our fundamental inability to form a true partnership with another, another human being. He wrote that our egomania digs two disastrous pitfalls. Either we insist upon dominating the people we know or we depend upon them far too much. And I really think that it's both of those things, dependence and dominance. And I'll tell you, I want to dominate my partner. I want him to do the dishes when I want him to. I want him to call me when I'm thinking about him. I want him to behave. Uh, And if my primary problems are are domination and dependence, my answers are not submission and independence. My answers are cooperation and interdependence. And that's what I strive toward. That's what I strive toward today in my relationship with that man whom I love so much, um, is that we have a mutually cooperative and mutually supportive relationship with each other, and that we have an interdependence where I know how my moods and actions and feelings affect him, and I appreciate how his affect me, and I, and I take my responsibility for the fact that his actions affect me. His actions don't affect me because he decided to do something to me. They affect me because of the way that I react to them, you know. And so if I can come to appreciate that more, then I can come to be more at ease. Uh, so that 
that article that Bill wrote called Emotional Sobriety has been very helpful to me. And then uh, it was published originally in our Grapevine. And a few years ago, our Grapevine magazine. How many of you are Grapevine subscribers or Lavinia subscribers? You are my people. The Grapevine uh, created an anthology called Emotional Sobriety, The Next Frontier, in which a number of Grapevine articles from over the years that touch on related themes um, were published. And, and a couple of those have been useful uh, to me, one of them particularly useful at work and as a 12-step tool. It was called Win or Lose, and uh, it was published in August of 2001. And... This is just a couple of lines from it. Take the words success and failure out of your vocabulary. Replace them with honesty and effort. Success and failure share a common denominator. Both are temporary. And I realized when I read this, as I reflected back on that incident where I'd blown up at work, that Alcoholics Anonymous had really kicked in for me because in walking through the aftermath of that, I had not been focused on whether I was going to succeed or fail at saving my job. I had focused instead on simply being honest and putting in whatever effort I could put to set that right. And this idea of replacing success and failure with honesty and effort in my vocabulary has been especially helpful for me in my sponsorship of men. Men in our culture are so trained that being on top and succeeding and being the big dog is important and that attitude will get us drunk. And so as I share my experience with men trying to help them to do a better job of being a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous in all their affairs, including in their work lives, I share this part with them. And, and many of them have thanked me for that. Another article from this anthology that has helped me a lot is called Savoring Sobriety, uh, August 1997. How am I doing on time, Pat? I got about eight minutes. I'm doing good. What does it mean to me to truly savor a sober life? The most important thing is that I'm in the present moment, not in the past or future. It means being quiet in my mind and not worrying about things I can't solve today or conducting conversations and arguments with people who aren't in the room. This is one of my chief failings. I will have an imaginary conversation with you in my head. You will say something critical of me. I will hold you responsible for that. And I will have a resentment against you for the imaginary criticism that you leveled against me in my head. And I've learned how to say thank you for sharing. Continuing further in this same article, don't clench, don't grab, slow down. You know, I talked with you about how in the lead up to that emotional outburst, I've been walking around with clenched toes and pursed lips. And hadn't even really been aware of it. So I told some people in my life, watch for those signs in me, would you please? 
You know, if you see me walking around with pursed lips and clenched toes, would you bring it to my attention? Um, and, and I've also done some other things, uh, incorporating uh, spirituality uh, from outside of Alcoholics Anonymous that have helped me a lot in learning how not to clench and how to slow down. The writer of Savoring Sobriety continues by quoting the 13th century Zen master Dogen, who said that a cook must prepare a simple broth of wild grasses with the same care that he prepares a rich cream soup. Savoring comes from paying attention to the task at hand, whatever it is. One of the challenges that we've had recently in our relationship, Mark and me, is um, that we're both very, very busy. He works full time. He goes to school. Uh, I am a professional person. They keep giving me more responsibilities. I don't know why. Um, And I'm doing some service in Alcoholics Anonymous that's kind of time consuming. And as a result, I came to realize earlier this year that I wasn't always listening well to my partner. When he was sharing about the little joys or the little frustrations of the day, um, my eyes still sometimes were on the computer screen or they were, you know, in my head was in my job or what have you. And this line reminds me, this line about preparing a simple broth in the same way that we would, with the same care that we would prepare a rich cream soup, that reminds me that I need to listen to my partner with the same care that I would listen to a symphony when he shares the most mundane and simple details of his day. Slowing down and just being in the present moment have been great gifts for me. Uh, And Alcoholics Anonymous and sobriety is a gift. And the author of Savoring Sobriety concludes by writing about gratitude. She writes, I think that's where gratitude comes in to help me to better appreciate whatever is going on in my life. Gratitude isn't a duty I have to perform. It's a tool, a form of perspective. It reminds me to appreciate the simple things. Every night that I go to bed sober and not in a blackout, every morning that I wake up without a hangover. Um, and to me, that's what it's really all about. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous not to get emotionally, emotionally sober. I came here not because I wanted to be a better man or be be exposed to and be able to find for myself a spiritual way of life. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous because I couldn't stop drinking and I couldn't stand it anymore. I couldn't stand the way that alcohol made me feel inside. That loneliness and that emptiness. And every drink that I took, every sip that I took, made that loneliness and emptiness bigger and bigger and bigger. But I couldn't stop. Um, and I came here and you gave me a relief, a release from that. Uh, you taught me a spiritual way of life that has changed the way that I react to alcohol. So that when the thought of a drink enters my mind, it just leaves without me even having to fight it. Because I do some things to maintain a daily spiritual condition. That's what I'm most grateful for. Uh, is that relief, that release from alcohol. Um, but so much gravy, so much good gravy, and I'll close with the last bit of good gravy, that, that Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me how to face and walk through 
those milestones that everybody encounters in life. Alcoholics and non-alcoholics encounter those milestones in life. Um, But when we were actively drinking, we just didn't know how to do it. Um, A week ago today, I was at the 50th wedding anniversary of a couple. They're the parents of my best friend who's been my best friend since third grade. They practically raised me because I didn't like being in the household that I grew up in. And so I would flee to their home. And Rick and Nancy celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary last Friday. Rick had been gravely ill for many months and was dying and was home. And I was able to go in and hold his hand, give him a kiss on the forehead, tell him that I love him and hear him say, I love you, back to me. And uh, Tuesday, when I was on my way to the airport, my friend Mark called to let me know that his dad, Rick, my second dad, had passed. And uh, I was so grateful that I had been there and sober and able to participate in that family gathering um, to hold a dying man's hand and feel free because I knew there was no baggage between us. That is, of course, another great gift of sobriety. And I have to be able to feel my emotions to walk through those kinds of experiences. So although I I most believe that joy is the greatest part of emotional sobriety, sadness is also a great part of emotional sobriety. Thank you all. Thanks for sharing, Joe. And I forgot to remind you, when you leave, be sure and turn your cell phones back on. I know you've got them all shut off. So, uh, and, uh, and our, our next speaker will be Tara. thinking was, oh my gosh, he's going to read like the two things I actually thought to read. <laughs> but I don't think he did. Um, um, so, and, uh, and just, and, and thank you so much to the other panel member, um, and I'm blanking on your name right now, and, and our moderator, because um, I'm like terrified. Um, and just thank you so much to San Antonio and to the committee. Yeah! This city will never be the same. I mean, this is incredible. And just, I don't know about anyone else. I mean, I, this is my first conference and, and like getting off the, the plane and coming down the escalator and seeing like these like awesome women with like Friends of Bill and then Friends of Bill signs and just so exciting. Um, my sobriety date is May 9th. 
of uh, 2000. I, um, yeah, I just celebrated 10 years. Crazy. That is, a, that's definitely nine and a half years longer than I planned, for sure. Absolutely. No, because really, I really thought, you know, um, I'll do like six months, get the boyfriend back, learn how to drink like a lady, and I can go, you know. So I'm really glad I didn't know that um, that, that was no part of this, um, the learning how to drink like a lady part. Um, uh, I did get the boyfriend back temporarily. <laughs> and actually, he may be, uh, we're not together anymore, but he's probably over at the al conference right now. He got very involved. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and I am, um, before I forget, oh wait, I'm just curious, for, uh, can you raise your hand if you have a year or less? Anyone? Yes! <laughs> that is so awesome. I could barely go to coffee. When I had like, <laughs> actually, I think by the time I had a year, I, I was, I was, um, I was, I would go out to eat, but um, I, I, I wouldn't eat, or I would, yeah, I just was like, I was so nervous, um, and uh, so I just, so I'm so glad that you guys are, that everybody is here. Um, just real quick, I have a, I have a home group. It is uh, the Friday Night Beginners Group. We meet uh, in Georgetown in Washington D.C. Woo! <laughs> That is my shout-out for DCAA, because it's awesome. Chicago, I'm going to get to you, don't worry. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, we meet at 1341 Wisconsin Avenue on Friday nights at 7 p.m. It's an open meeting. I would love to see every single one of you there. Um, of course, not yet. Not all at the same time. <laughs> um, and then uh, I have a sponsor, and her name is Caitlin. And I, I adore her, and I want what she has, but I couldn't have gotten to where I am today without Chicago AA. Yay! Um, Chicago AA, Chicago Area Service, and, um, and my first two sponsors, Lisa Kay and Megan B. Um, I wish that everybody could have those three women as their sponsors. Well, maybe not the dudes, but I don't know. Well, hey, you know, it doesn't matter, whatever, men, women. But um, I know for me, they're just... They, they, I, I feel like the luckiest girl in the world that I've had those women in my life and continue to have them in my life. And, and the women in, in my sponsorship family, both, because um, I still consider myself part of my sponsorship family in Chicago and um, as well as D.C. Um, so all that said, <laughs> um, so emotional sobriety. Um, it was interesting. When I was telling people I was speaking on a panel and they said, which one? I say emotional sobriety, and we would both laugh. <laughs> and inevitably, I could not stop myself. I'd say, "Yeah, and I should get some," you know. I mean, it's just—it's—it's. It's, um, I—I'm really grateful though because we were talking before the meeting. Um, I—I got I, I sort of introduced the concept of emotional sobriety um, pretty early on. Uh, I remember I had less than six months at the time, and. Uh, the Al-Anon boyfriend was out of town, and so I thought, okay, I guess I better hang out with people from AA. And so, because I really, I, I was really terrified to really jump in. Um, when I was new, I, uh, I went to my meetings, I, I read, you know, I did my little assignments, but I was really terrified for you guys to get to know me, 
for me, I was I was lazy too. I was like, wait, so now I have to get to know you, and it's not over a glass of wine, which made things, you know, it just made things go so much faster. Um, some things too fast, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, um, and uh, so so early on, um, I went to this workshop and. I don't remember a whole lot because I was still pretty foggy, but I do remember calling Lisa after and saying, Lisa, what is this? I mean, this was like Relationships Anonymous. Like, I, 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 like I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get it. And, and she told me, she said, Tara, you know, when we get to a certain point, particularly steps 10, 11, and 12, it is about relating to other people. I mean, I just didn't know how little I knew about interacting with others and relating to others. And, and like what Joel talked about, like my, my reactions to people. I mean, just, I think back to, you know, that whole, I mean, even past the first year of sobriety, but certainly in my first year when I still was just, you know, drying out, rinsing out, you know, and, and starting to come to, just seeing how I just, I really didn't know how, how to interact with my fellows. And um, I do want to read, um, so I, I, you know, I, I did my Googling and, uh, and I, because I wanted to, you know, read again the, uh, the, the letter that was mentioned earlier that was in the grapevine about emotional sobriety. And, um, and I love how it says here, Bill says, my stability came out of trying to give, not out of demanding that I receive. And I remember at about six months of sobriety when I, or maybe it's a little more, I don't know, like I said, it's foggy. <laughs> um, but I remember I started to just do what you guys said and not think so much about it. And, and my friend Tate and I, we would be in meetings, and uh, there was always a halftime. And, and at halftime, any girl who raised her hand for, like, first 30 days, we would just attack her. <laughs> we would just, we were like this little swarm, the two of us. And, um, you know what, that was one of the happiest times in my life and one of the happiest times in my early sobriety when I was, like, first getting that rush of what it felt like to help somebody else but not expect something in return. Because I don't know about anyone else, but that is how I lived my life. Everything was conditional. You know, um, I, you know, if I gave you something, I was expecting something in return. Um, I, I have a wonderful, wonderful mom, and she, um, if Emily Post hadn't written a book on manners, she probably would have. <laughs> and, and we were taught very, at a very early age, you write thank you notes. And, 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 and within my family, you know, um, the, the, the little ones that didn't write thank you notes got a reputation, got a reputation for like not writing thank you notes. And, and so it's like you didn't want to be that. And so, and, and not to blame this on my family or anything like that, but just, or I take things and I, I morph it in my head. And so it, very early on I was like, you gotta do things the right way. You gotta make sure, you know, you give, I get. And, and there was always this, this system of checks and balances in my head. And so at that, at that, that six month, eight month mark, I just remember being like, wow, this is so fun, you know, just to like kind of rush up to new women and, and be able to give them something that I never, I never thought possible. You know, I never thought I would be free of the obsession to drink. I never thought that, um, that I wouldn't constantly be afraid and insecure. Um, you know, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I, uh, like I said, I mean, I, I, I wanted my boyfriend back. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to not feel so crazy. 
Um, I really, I thought, my, my best idea was, and although it's not something I could have logistically or financially finagled at the time, was to go live on a ranch in Montana, um, yes, by myself. I watched, I must have watched like Legends of the Fall one too many times or something. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I, I was okay, I, I wanted to be there totally by myself though, and it was gonna be for a month, and, uh, a ranch hand or two could come visit to like take care of things, cause I wasn't gonna do that. And, um, and you know, if, if Henry Thomas or, um, you know, Anthony Hopkins from Legends of the Fall wanted to come pay a visit, that would be fine too. But other than that, you know, that, that was it. Um, because I couldn't, I couldn't stop my head from racing. I couldn't stop the noise. I couldn't stop the static. I couldn't stop those mean, mean, evil voices. And I don't know if anyone else can relate to that, but just that, like, you know, and even in sobriety, when I've gone through rough periods, those voices that just come back and they are just, they're vicious. They're absolutely vicious. And, you know, I, I was taught at some point in those first couple years, you know, after doing some inventories, um, it was pointed out to me that, that I, I, I had this pride in the reverse thing, which I just was like, well, I, I don't really, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, you know. Um, what's that mean? What do you mean pride in the reverse? And I was like, I suck. I'm horrible, you know, and, and not realizing that I actually, because I thought that I sucked and that I was horrible, it, it was like this weird twisted, like, I actually then thought I was better than you because I knew how much I sucked, you know, I knew, you know. <laughs> I am like, I am so humble that I know I'm awful, you know, and, and, uh, it was great because, what was so wonderful is just the other day I read in one of my um, my little meditation books that, um, and I'm going to paraphrase, but that like pride in the reverse gives me an excuse not to change. Hmm. And because it can still happen today, a little, little, little bit of self pity here and there, and it's true. If I'm just sort of sitting there like, well, gee, I'm just like I'm just hopeless and lame and awful. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's, I, I, I can't quite see the exit. You know, when, when I do that. But when I get out of myself and, uh, and, and try to help somebody else, and if I am having a hard time, like, just being in it. Okay. I'm having a hard time. You know, cause I know when I, when I moved to Washington DC, and like I said, what brought me there were the enormous gifts of this program. Enormous, enormous gifts. Um, it was a rough transition for me. It was hard. And that was even with, Going to meetings, I mean, DCAA scooped me up the second I stepped off that plane, even before I stepped off the plane. And, um, and I just, I struggled. And, and my friends in DC still make fun of me because for, for a long time, for like years, <laughs> um, I was still like Tara from Chicago or, um, or like, <laughs> maybe I still have, I don't know. Um, and, or, you know, someone said in a meeting that they were, it doesn't even, at first, it, like, all you have to do is be from the Midwest, and you get a whoop whoop, you know, from me, like, I mean, that's all it took, and, and, uh, and just the other day, but, you know, you know, if someone comes to my home group, and they say they're from Chicago or Illinois, I'm like, yay, you know, um, I get real inappropriate, and, um, but, <laughs> and I'm still working on it, and still growing and changing, um, but um, so I, I just say all that because I, I appreciated what Joel said about, you know, at 14 years, you know, going through this sort of like metamorphosis of sorts. And um, and, and I feel like in some ways I've, I've had that happen where it's like, you know, I, I don't feel like I've gone through these this rough period. And even 
even a rough period about a year ago because, like, I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. I was doing the best I could and working with a sponsor and having a home group and having women that I sponsor and, and showing up, but that just, like, life just still happens. I'm still a human being. I have these instincts. I have these defects. And, um, but I do believe as an alcoholic, I can take my reactions to the extreme or maybe I feel them in a more extreme way or they freak me out in a way that's more extreme than, than someone who's not an alcoholic. Um, I, uh, I remember too, I wanted to, to say, um, uh, you know, in terms of like being exposed to, you know, learning about emotional sobriety, um, my, my first sponsor used to have our, us, her sponsees all get together once a week and first we went through 10, 11, and 12 and the 12 and 12 and then we started going through language of the heart and that's when it really started to sink in that um, I truly brought with me to Alcoholics Anonymous just an, an, an emotional state and an emotional makeup that was in such shambles um, and, and when I started coming to meetings and heard what you guys were saying if you weren't talking about what was going on in your life and that language of the heart and what you were doing to get better and, and keep moving forward, I don't think I would have stayed because a part of me was like, well, I was just a nice girl who drank too much, you know? I was like, I just blacked out one too many times. I just puked one too many times. I woke up in strange places with strange people, but not every day, you know, like it was just, it was crazy, you know? I mean, you know, I, I would say things like, I mean, I haven't lost my wallet in six months, right on, you know. I mean, these were, these were, you know, those were, that's what I hung on to. And so by hearing about, like, emotional sobriety in, in, in these various forms and in, in, in our literature, that kept me here. And it's what keeps me here now. And I know that if I don't continue to, to nurture that, that emotional nature, that, um, that stability that it talks about, I don't care for that. If I don't care for myself spiritually, and I don't mean in like a selfish way, but I mean, you know, be self-supporting, you know, pray every morning, pray at night, do the daily inventory, you know, do the things that you guys have taught me. Um, what, why wouldn't I drink? Why wouldn't I drink if I'm not doing those things to stay, to stay emotionally sober? Because as soon as I, that emotional sobriety goes out the window, I become at such risk to take a drink because I can't live with myself. I can't live with myself when I'm lying and cheating. And the other thing I did want to mention, and, and it's all throughout this letter, that Bill talks about, you know, he was severely depressed because he was so dependent on, on other people, on, on things. And, and I get that. I, I you know, I, in the 10th step, in the 12 and 12, it talks about how, you know, we could try not to make demands on other people anymore. And, and I get that. I mean, I remember I was I started dating someone um, at, about a year or so of sobriety, and um, I remember if this memory keeps coming back to me, maybe because of this panel. You know, we were standing outside of a restaurant after um, a meeting, and he just—it was a Friday night, and we'd seen each other a bunch of times that week, and he just wanted to do his own thing, and I had like a, a, a breakdown. Like I was all like I was like, "What do you mean? Do you not like me?" Like crazy. I was that crazy girl, you know. Oh my god! I like I think about it to this day, and I'm like, how did that dude end up dating you for as long as he did with that kind of start? You know what I mean? I mean, he must have had a much better program than I did at the time. <laughs> but you know that kind of thing of just like making everything so personal, and 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 for me, it all comes back to this like this underlying fear. I always think about that now. Like I've been to some fourth and fifth step meeting recently, and that 
you know, this dependency on other people, this, like, this intense um, fear of, like, what you're going to think and, oh, my God, is everything going to be okay, um, comes back to this, like, this, this really shallow, empty, self-centered fear. And that when I have God, when I am relying on God and building up that foundation, I'm all right. It just, so many things just don't matter. They just don't, you know, and I, and I can just, I can just make such a production of things when it, when it's just me off of my own with my self-will and, and, you know, and Bill also talks about in this letter and also it talks about the 12 and 12, just getting so caught up in like these external things that could define me or, or you know, make me okay or, or, you know, what, what Joel was talking about. I mean, I think it's only in the last year that I finally, when I go home to visit my family, not think, like, are they going to say I look nice? Are they going to say, like, have you lost, like, 10 pounds? You know, like, just goofiness. You know, like, does my hair look okay? I mean, it's it's so unfair. It's so unfair for me to do that, um, to put that on other people. And I've done that for so many years. And um, and I just, you know, I think, I think I'm almost out of time, right? Out oh, of five minutes? <laughs> um, cool, then actually I can read a little bit more of this. Um, but um, you guys are like, oh my gosh. Um, but uh, I just want to mention, though, too, like in terms of my exposure to um, emotional sobriety as far as like us, you know, we and AA kind of helping each other with it. And if you can get your hands on the CDs, which I'm sure you can, um, I went to, and this is when it sort of sunk in a little bit more because I think I had like three years at the time. But I went to um, a workshop with Polly P. and James L. It was so good. And they're just, I mean, they just, um, I, and only just recently, and I was kicking myself, I've moved around a lot. And so I, um, I threw out the papers because I dragged them around with me for so many years and realized I was like, okay, I've got to start getting rid of some of this stuff. But it was so valuable. And, again, it kind of hit home for me just how much I can practice on a daily basis to, to – be a better woman, be a better daughter, sister, uh, cousin, girlfriend, coworker, and I even think of like even just person on the sidewalk, you know, um, because I, I can be that person where it's like I'm on the bus and I, you know, you come and sit next to me and I'm like, why, why are you sitting next to me? A, I'm like, there's an empty seat over there. I need my space, yo, you know, like. <laughs> so, you know, so being a nice. Being a nice person, being a nice girl, a nice woman, and just, you know, and, 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 and I think, you know, we mentioned that men have certain pressures. I think women have pressures, too, in sobriety and life. I think people do. I, I believe, I live in a, thank you. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, I think we all have our challenges. I think, I mean, I live, I mean, I could say, you know, I live in D.C. You want to talk about a town that's ambitious and competitive? Whoa, <laughs> you know? I mean, it really... It, it, you have to, there's a lot, you need to practice your program. You know, you really got to practice it. And I'm glad that early on, my sponsor Lisa said to me when we were on six and seven that this is practice. You're not going to flip a switch just because it's like, oh, I have a defect, great, I'm done with it. You know? Because I remember calling her one time and I was like, oh, I did that thing again. And she said, well, the important thing is that it's objectionable to you now. Because there was a time where it wasn't. And it was, and it was that dependence on someone else, because it gets me sick to my stomach now when I catch myself. And and I'll just kind of, like, start to wrap it up. I um, Just this last fall, I found that I was getting really dependent on some things outside of me, and when those things were gone, um, I, I was really sad. I felt the kind of sadness I hadn't felt in a very long time. And, and some of the things that transpired, were they were good things, but, like, 
I remember Megan saying to me, like, we don't do change well. And I remember thinking, oh, maybe you don't do change well, but, you know, hey. And, uh, but I don't do change well <laughs> at all. <laughs> and, and it's good I have a lot of help for that. And I believe that once, but it forced me to, like, focus on God, focus on my foundation and, and how I can help and serve others. Because that's what you guys taught me here. It's not, like, just helping other people and serving other people without expecting anything in return because that's what emotional sobriety is to me. You know, how am I treating you today? You know, like, I, I, my relationship with my family has gotten significantly better just in the last year because I, I, I wasn't behaving well. You know, at nine years of sobriety, I was hanging up on, on someone. That's not cool, you know, and that's not, that's not the example I've been given in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and uh, so I'm just, uh, oh, I, I, I mean, I have this incredible life today, and it's thanks to you guys. It is thanks to all of you. It is thanks to this fellowship. And like I said, if you had told me 10 years ago I'd be standing here talking to you and my life would look the way it does, I'd be like, you're crazy. I mean, you are completely insane. No, you know. In fact, I probably would have scoffed. I've been like, um, no, I'm a little too cool. I'm so not going to be here in 10 years, you know, even though, like, I'm like, wow. I'm like, that's the thing is, like, the cool people are in these rooms, you know? Like, they are. I mean, like, this is where it's at. Like, and for me, this was absolutely the last house on the block. I was like, give me any other diagnosis, but just let me have my alcohol, you know what I mean? I don't need my glass of wine, you know, and I don't need that today. I just need you guys. I need God. I need a lot of help. I need the steps. And um, and I just one shout out to the New Yorkers. I talked to some New Yorkers beforehand. What's just up? What's up? Yeah, exactly. I love it. So, um, you guys, thank you so much. Thank you for allowing me to participate in my sobriety today. Thank you. Thanks for sharing, Tara. And security told me if you leave, you won't be able to get back in. I think there's too many people for the fire code or something. So, uh, and our next speaker is uh, Brandon. Thank you very much. My name is Brandon W. and I'm an alcoholic. And you don't all have to leave yet, but that's all right. I understand. I hail from Abbotsford, British Columbia, which is Canada. And in Canada, we say A-A-A. <laughs> Texas is huge, and I never thought in my wildest dream I'd be down here, but, but thank you very much, Texas. I honestly thought this venue would be bigger. I am an alcoholic. Next time, the, the Aladome. Uh, no, all kidding aside, um, I'm very grateful to be part of this. And when I was asked back in... Um, actually, I wasn't asked. We put our name in a hat and we were chosen. So that's cool, too. Um, but um, I've th thought about this, and as my, my two previous speakers, um, I did Google it too, and we all found the same literature. So I really don't have to say much. Um, uh, 
My sobriety date is July 1st, 2001. So. My ego says right on, but in Canada, that's when we celebrate Canada Day, so I celebrate it with everybody. I'm no different. So it keeps me humble and down to size is what I'm getting at. How many of you here are, are here for your first international convention? Wow. That is amazing. I'm privileged to be this is my second. And uh, I did the first one in Toronto. And if you were there, thank you for coming to Canada. And if you've never been to one before, which by the number of hands, tonight will be over the top. And if you have what I have, that was my spiritual awakening. Um, when they asked for a moment of silence, you could hear a pin drop in the room. I started to cry. And I was with my people. And um, that's what keeps me in, down to size. And I'm really not that nervous. Um, last night when I came in and looked with my friends, I just about puked. <laughs> but I used to do that all the time. <laughs> and I haven't had to puke in nine years. So relatively, I'm still a newcomer. And um, when I did a lot of this emotional sobriety, as the previous speakers did, uh, I thought, I don't have it. And it's funny, when you look up some literature, um, even Fritz talked about it. I don't know if you know Pearl Fritz. And, I, and um, Dr. Harry Talbert talked about it. Those are people that helped with Bill and his depression and his emotional sobriety. I actually had the privilege to go to an emotional sobriety workshop with doctors and I got all this PowerPoint, but they wouldn't play it for me here. <laughs> so I'm going to have to just go from the top of my head. But as I said, is, um, the, the essence of emotional sobriety from what I've gained from it or garnered is uh, growing up. What a, what a, what a concept. I was 40 years old, and I didn't know how to live. I knew how to do a lot of things, but staying sober wasn't one of them. And I didn't come here to sober up. I came here for a place to rest. And uh, through treatment, and I, I, my hat's off to people that, that put work in treatment, and the AA members that come in and carried their message um, of Alcoholics Anonymous, took the time out of their days and lives to come and and not teach us, but to show us that this thing really works. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I grasped onto that. I grasped onto emotional sobriety. I mean, and they talk about that in our literature, too, and other literature. Um, the first part is detoxification, stop drinking, of course. Second is about staying sober, which helps. doesn't mean you have to, but it certainly helps when you do. And the third part is about living in sobriety. Um, because a lot of our old-timers that have multiple years, and um, they suffer from depression. And you wonder what happens to them. They go to the door. And um, so, not that I'm a smart fellow, I can guarantee you that, but, but I uh, looked, after I got some trust in the people, I looked in their eyes, I seen what they were doing. I actually stalked them. Joking. Um, but I, I, I caught the play, and, and after about six months of... of Talk of the talk, walk in the walk, early recovery, BS is what I called it. I had a slip, which wasn't planned, but it was, I did everything that they told me not to do, and I did it.
But uh, because that's how I, I roll. <laughs> and literally roll. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, I only had one. And uh, I, I phoned my sponsor and said, you know what? Uh, I had a flip. And he laughed at me. I said, what the hell is that about? And he said, um, we haven't done anything. And so he had my number. And um, so uh, we went through the steps together. And I can honestly say, because I actually did a step five in that first six months. And I actually had copied my roommate's steps in treatment and gave them to my counselor. We're pretty smart in Canada. But it doesn't work. Don't do it. So he made me go back to the same man and uh, who had actually only listened to me for 10 minutes, about 10 minutes and said, are you done? I said, yeah. He said, see ya. And he meant he'd be seeing me later. Uh, and I went back there and I got honest with him. And after, uh, what I, I can't remember the time limit, but after honestly opening up, and I remember the statement he said to me, is all anybody's ever done all their life for you is the best they could. And that hit me. It took all that resentment at the time and I was mad at everybody including myself and it turned it around and um, that's what emotional sobriety is is about turning it inside not the rage the guilt the shame the blame the BS that goes with it it's about having an honest look at yourself and trying to be the best person you can be and that has been uh, good and bad Um, but there's people out there that are willing to help and um Service has been great for me. Um, I got involved in service because I was told to um, from uh, from good, well-meaning people that had, had done um, service themselves. And um, I uh, made coffee for a year and a half till I had a resentment because <laughs> I was the only one doing it. And um, so I quit that home group and uh, went back two we- went back two weeks later, and their coffee was made, and they smiled at me and said. You can still have that job if you want, but I I, stood, I, I put it down and said no. So I went as an alternate GSR and uh, found out we had to do business meetings and stuff like that. And most of the members in my group, who were a long-time group, uh, they didn't want to do business meetings because they said all that causes is arguing. So I said, well, if you want to keep your coffee makers happy, perhaps we should. We can rotate a bit. And uh, that group actually folded, not because of me. It's just because things get... Things change in AA, and you know, there's part of my emotional sobriety is, is I'm all right with that today. AA is in, in good shape. I mean, this is a, a prime, prime result of that. But I remember when that meeting was, was close to failure, and my sponsor looked at me and says, Nothing happens by mistake, Brandon. It may close, and it may not. Consequently, another home group made from a lot of the key players in there that wanted to do a, a, a business meeting is now one of the strongest groups in that community. Nothing to do with me. I had actually left that community, so maybe that's why it's a strong group. But So I moved to a new, a new community, Abbotsford, where I now live today. Uh, my home group is at 12 by 12 on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, we have six members. I think I'm the, I am the youngest. Uh, a lot of the members, 30, 40 years of sobriety, all of the four. And so there's hundreds of years of sobriety in there, so I'm still the newcomer. But um, after the alternate GSR, I, I served that group as a GSR. Then I tried to, to uh, get out of it all, and uh, I put my name forward for the alternate DCM. 
and somehow God had another plan, and I became a DCM, and uh, I've served that. But throughout that whole process also, I realized that going to these uh, assemblies and quarterlies where we do the AA business, is really all I was doing was rubber stamping. I, I really wasn't involved. I was, I was a carrier. I thought I was involved, and I thought what I had to say was important, and if you didn't listen to me, then I'd kind of go and bend somebody else's ear. But, but really all I, I am is just a, a small piece of the big puzzle. And um, from there, of course, I, I got... Uh, put my name forward to area and I was chosen to uh, to sit with the CPC Cooperation with Professionals Community which I serve as on Area 79 BC Yukon and I have the opportunity to go and um, speak to people what AA is and what AA isn't that's where um, and if any of you here are service junkies you might understand this that's where all that background material that we get sent to our groups you actually have to read that stuff you have to know what you're talking about. Not only you have to know what you're talking about, you have to see where that history comes from. And that's why I say AA is in good shape. And then what that has done is that's turned my ego around into humility. Is I also realize that I'm just a small part of this big puzzle, like you. And I'm very grateful for that today because at one time I used to think I was a large part of no puzzle. And I, I couldn't fit in it anywhere. But the definitions of recovery, you know, and, and, I, and I, I'm not going to reword what everybody else told here, is, is it basically maturing and growing up and um, helping one another. I mean, um, it's not just about keeping the message going. It's about keeping the people in the rooms going. It's the, it's the old person beside you. It's the young person coming in the door. That person coming through the door might be your next delegate. If we, if we take the time, like my sponsor did, is to teach me. Not to show me. You can show me and I'm going to do it my way in the end anyways. It's just the way I, I do things. You know? Until I heard enough and then I'll decide to take that suggestion. But the simple guidelines to Alcoholics Anonymous and the traditions which keep us together in unity is what keeps this uh, spirit alive and well. Um, ego, crushed of ego. That's the other part of, of emotional sobriety, because uh, for me, my ego has to be kept in check at all time. Um, kind of very surprised I don't have that overwhelming fear inside me right now when I speak. Because what who I'm speaking to is people like myself. I'm no different. I'm no better. I'm an alcoholic. That's the biggest truth I know today in my life. That along with prayer and meditation, not medication, <laughs> works. You know, I don't do this program 100%, but I, I keep it simple. First 164 pages of the big book, nothing over the top. I sponsor men. I have a sponsor. My sponsor has a sponsor. And lineage, that's very important. See what your sponsor is doing. See what your sponsor's sponsor is doing. And you know, that to me is the essence for myself. What works for you? I don't know. But I, um, the upside of the whole thing for me is um, when I, upon awakening, I would get on my knees and I pray. And I, and I can say that honestly today. I used, to, I used to do things to my sponsor when he asked me if I did that. I'd say, yeah. And I'd say, uh, I'd think, do things to throw him off too. I'd say, my prayers aren't very polished. Do you want to hear them? And he'd say, yeah. 
And I'd say, I wake up and I say, F you in the morning. And at night I say, F off. I didn't really do that. I have to say that. So I don't want to offend anybody. If that offended you, talk to your sponsor. But, <laughs> but what I would do is I'd try to throw him off track. And he said, we'll do it that way. See how that works. I could, I could never get him. You know, he was on to me, I tell you. Um, today, I honestly get on my knees and I pray. And um, this program, you know, it's not only saved my life, but it's, it's uh, and I've heard that this also, it's about relationships. I had a big relationship problem with my father, like a lot of us alcoholics. I did things my way and uh, had the opportunity to take him to France and did a step nine with him in France in Lourdes. I was raised as a Catholic and, uh, you know, he still wants me to pray his way. My father goes to church seven days a week. He's cramming for the finals. <laughs> See, us in AA, we only have to do it once. I just keep living that way. We never have to cram anymore. But, you know, uh, it, was a, it was an amazing experience because even with all that resentment that I had against him, all he could do was the best he could with an alcoholic child, well, five alcoholic children. Um... But at the end of the day, when, when we sat there and had that son-to-father talk, um, that was amazing. He will never understand my alcoholism. You know, at five years of sobriety, he said, you've been sober for five years. You can have a drink now. And I looked at him. I said, yeah, I could. I choose not to. And that's as close as I'm ever going to get to explain to him my disease. You know, and that's all right. For you folks that are in this room today, we don't have to justify why we're in AA. And for those of you, and I hope everybody can join us in the Serenity Prayer tonight, you'll know why we're here in AA. Tonight will be over the top, I can guarantee it. And I'm very, very grateful to be a very small part of the large puzzle. Thanks for letting me share. Thanks a lot for sharing, Brandon, and uh, we have some time left, and I'm not a speaker, but I want to tell you a little bit about me, and uh, I first, well, one time, uh, talking about emotional sobriety, when they first asked me to chair this meeting, I told my sponsor, I said, I don't know anything about emotional sobriety, he said, you don't have to, you're just a chairman, <laughs> but he said, that's the whole program, really, and it is, one day, I remember I sitting there, I looked in the encyclopedia under alcoholism, and it said, it's an emotional disease, you know, and, uh, and I've been told that once you uh, start drinking, you quit growing emotionally. I think I quit growing emotionally as soon as I was born, because I never fit in with my family or anybody, you know. And uh, in fact, I've never, even now at meetings, they say, you got any, any visitors? I always want to say, yeah, me from outer space. So I always felt like I was uh, space. And uh, in fact, one day I said to my wife a few years ago, I said, uh, when, are you gonna think, when do you think they're going to come back and get me? She said, why do you think they left you? They don't want you either, you know. So, uh, but, uh, but I found out really first, and they were talking about that letter that uh, Bill Wilson wrote. And I think at the end he kind of said, well, how you get some emotional sobriety is do what you did at first, working with newcomers, you know. And I think that's, uh, well, for me, I came in and I said, there's three legacies. There's, uh, recovery, unity, and service. And, uh, the recovery is I, I take these 12 steps. I don't have to kill myself, you know, because I was always, uh, 
I was going to kill myself and show them or something like that. And then I, I learned the traditions or just the principles. I learned the steps and I practiced them in all of my affairs. I don't have to kill you guys. I can have, have relationships. And, uh, and then service work, there's 12 concepts. I can do service work. I don't have to wipe out whole nations, you know. I was, uh, I remember I was in the army. I was over in Germany one time and I hadn't drank for three days. If I went three days without drinking, I was dangerous. And I was in this tank and I just wanted to blow everything to the pieces, you know. And, uh, somehow I didn't. And that was, and that's what alcoholism is for me too. I found out it's, it wasn't, my problem wasn't alcohol. It was alcoholism, you know, because, uh, well, actually, I never had any comfort and ease until I drank alcohol. And then those first couple of drinks, everything fell in place. But I just couldn't, I couldn't stop or I had no control. And uh, I always say alcohol made me better looking, made women better looking, took away all my fear. What else can you ask for, you know, from 14 to 44? And then I got to, I got to be 45 and I couldn't depend on alcohol anymore. So I come to Alcoholics Anonymous and took the steps and have a sponsor and a home group do service work and now AA makes me better looking, makes women better looking, takes away all my fear. <laughs> Sorry to make everybody leave, but <laughs> it don't really make me better looking. I don't but I don't care anymore, you know, I don't worry. Because that used to be my biggest worry with what people thought about me all the time. My biggest fear was other people, well, other people and God. I was terrified of God, too. And uh, I come to A, and they said, uh, I said, I want to talk about God. And they said, we use good orderly direction for God. And I made A my good orderly direction. And, uh, by, uh, you know, and now I have a relationship with a God that I don't really understand. I like that Star Wars where just let the force be with you. There's some kind of force that just... Uh, directs me around. I've got that I've got a God conscience, they call it really. It's because if I think I want something I usually get it or I think about somebody I usually uh uh I'll see him or something like that, you know. In fact even chairing this meeting I was well I'm the chairman of the intergroup back in uh my hometown and uh they sent a form out to suggest speakers. So I was gonna suggest myself <laughs> I got I got a lot of humility, <laughs> and, uh, but I lost the form. And, uh, <laughs> so then, I don't know. About a month later, I get this letter. They wanted me to chair the meeting. <laughs> I thought, well, it's just. But that this happened over and over. You know, I think, and I don't know emotional sobriety. I think now me and my wife. Well, it used to be. Uh, when I first got sober, I used to walk every day. I was out walking one day, and all of a sudden I thought, damn, nobody owes me. I owe everybody. And so I went home. I told my wife, I said, you want to leave? You can. You want me to leave? I'll leave. I can't force you to do anything. And, uh, of course, she'd been trying to figure out a way to kill me, but now she didn't want to leave. And uh, so, uh, <clears throat> but, but now we just kind of have a partnership. Before what I did, I just took her hostage. You know, she always had the dumbest friends, so I get rid of them. And, uh if she didn't agree with me, I explained it to her about 20 ways so she'd fall over an agreement. And then, then I'd say, what do you think? And she'd say, nothing. i think, damn, everybody thinks something. And uh, But now I, I say she's the most spiritual person I know. She just lets me do whatever I want to. And uh, But I think that's, if you love somebody, you just set them free. And uh, I'm going brain dead. <laughs>